From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. This hour, we look at the role of women in Islam, from those who strictly follow the Quran. Allah and His Prophet liked for women to cover themselves, so I also like myself covered and hidden. To those who have determined there is no place left for them within the faith. I always thought it was meant to protect me, but slowly I started to feel that it wasn't so much to protect me as it was to constrain me. That was part of the reason I left. And everywhere in between. Religion is not always an obstacle. It can be the source of empowerment. Understanding Islamic feminism next on America Abroad. In the spring of 2011, then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton addressed the U.S. Islamic World Forum. All over the world, we see living proof that Islam and women's rights are compatible. How much living proof there is of the compatibility between Islam and women's rights today is the source of a lively debate among women's rights advocates and scholars. And I think that the notion of Islamic feminism means a variety of different things depending on who you speak to. Sahar Amr is a professor of Arabic and Arab cultures at the University of Sydney in Australia. There are some Muslims who refuse the notion that you need even to coin a term called Islamic feminism because for them Islam is feminist by definition, so why do you need to make a big deal out of it? But there are also a lot of uh, Muslim women who embrace the term Islamic feminism because they want precisely to reject the notion that European and American feminists of the first generation regarded them as oppressed. When I was 15, 16, I did wear mini skirts and high heels and everything. But what was the situation in education and in work and in marriage and in divorce and in independent life and autonomy and agency? That was not very good either. So the idea of veil or no veil or the idea of appearance is not always an accurate measurement of what's going on. Omaima Abu Bakr is a professor at Cairo University. She believes uh, Islam and feminism can coexist, but with some reinterpretations of the classical texts. We're correcting, we're reforming past patriarchal interpretations of the religion. Marwa Sharafuddin is sitting in a busy coffee shop on her last day in Cairo before traveling. She helped found several women's rights NGOs here and works with the international organization Musawa, which advocates for family law reform in several countries. Now, when we say Islamic feminism, for me, it's a kind of feminism that draws inspiration from an Islam that calls for equality and justice, but also it's also a notion that does not exclude the lived realities of women and men today. She considers herself secular, but believes feminists need to accept that religion has a role to play in the women's rights movement. Islamic feminists differ over whether laws need to be reformed to better reflect the original Islamic jurisprudence or whether the religiously based laws should be tossed out altogether. I think that Islamic feminism is actually going to be the entry point for this whole renewal of Islamic discourse. So it will be up to the women themselves, the Muslim women themselves, who are not willing to let go of their religion, but at the same time, they are not willing to accept being treated as second-class citizens because of a certain version of religion. People need to uh, rethink this idea of an Islamic feminism uh, as an oxymoron. Put it in the context of, there's Christian feminism, by the way, there's Jewish feminism, there's Buddhist feminism. 
So it is not a freak phenomenon that Islamic feminism, and it's not even something that came out of the blue. It's not one paradigm, it's not one shape, it's not only mainstream Western feminism. And just like those different perspectives on feminism itself, she emphasizes there can be just as many different perspectives on Islamic feminism, as unique as each Muslim woman. And that, she says, is good for the religion and good for women. For America Abroad, I'm Kimberly Adams in Cairo. Coming up, what does the Quran say about the role of women? Some say it lays out the roles for women explicitly. Others say it's open to interpretation. The trouble is, men have been doing most of the interpreting. And it was for us a really liberating experience to discover so many verses in the Quran that talk about justice, about equality, about compassion, about men and women being each other's protector and friend. You know, these wonderful verses in the Quran that we discovered, and the question then arose, how come these wonderful egalitarian verses in the Quran did not become the source of law and practice and culture in you know, gender relationship in the Muslim context. So this is really an issue of authority. And we felt, you know, we were convinced that the Quran has a very liberating message and an egalitarian message, a just message towards women, and that we were determined that we want to change the discourse on Islam and women's rights in the public space. She's saying, I don't have any rights and I need the law to be on my side so that he can't hit me anymore. She's at the courthouse today seeking a divorce. A decade ago, her husband would have to give his permission for a divorce, but today, under the Mudawana family code, she can ask the judge for herself. It was quite revolutionary compared to the old family law code. Nadia Semeveld is a legal anthropologist studying the implementations of the Mudawana in rural populations seeing how the law works out in practice. Morocco has one of the most progressive uh, family law codes, uh, except for Tunisia. In Egypt and in many Muslim countries, the wife has a legal obligation to be obedient to her husband. And that means that she must ask for his permission to leave the house for work or to buy groceries. She should, legally speaking, ask for his permission. Women in Morocco, as in many Muslim-majority countries, run the home and drive many of the family decisions. So it's only natural they should have some say in their and their family's legal status. People whom we are calling Islamic feminists, they will look into the sources of Islamic law in a way that, you know, is in line with how they would like to improve women's rights. And I think that's what you might call Islamic feminism. But it's being employed by both men and women. France has Europe's largest Muslim population. It's also one of Europe's most secular countries. A few years ago, France enacted the so-called burqa ban. If a Muslim woman wears a burqa in public, she can be fined. A man forcing a woman to wear one can be fined and imprisoned. The ban has stirred debate over whether France is protecting or persecuting religious freedom. Cheryl Brumley reports. Raihana, who just goes by her first name, is an actress, playwright, and now a filmmaker. We meet at her office at a production house in Paris. She points to a group of her characters sketched out in pencil taped to the wall. 
The movie she's working on is an adaptation of the play that brought her fame in France. It takes place in a bathhouse in Algeria. Most of the characters are dressed in robes and towels. One is dressed in a burqa. She says this character is, quote, super Islamist and not very nice. Her characterization isn't accidental. As a feminist in France, she has strong feelings about the burqa. You cannot be part of French society if you're wearing a burqa. The burqa is hiding not only the body, but even the face. And, and it, it's just absolutely not, not possible. No, no, no. Raihana made international headlines in 2010 when she was attacked by two men on her way to the theater. They threw petrol on her and then tossed a cigarette at her face, which luckily didn't set her ablaze. It was something that I didn't expect at all. And it was really one of the most terrible days of my life. I still have nightmares about it. De ma vie, j'en fais encore des cauchemars. Nothing is impossible for both men and women. Shanaz Khan is a 27-year-old woman from the northwestern part of Pakistan, an area that was controlled by the Taliban and other extremist groups until recently. She first put on a burqa when she was 15. Allah and his prophet liked for women to cover themselves, so I also like myself covered and hidden. Shanaz says no one objects to her burqa at home or at work, but her traditional covering does not mean she has a traditional attitude when it comes to women's rights. I think parents should not discriminate between sons and daughters. They have to provide an education to both because both sons and daughters are God's gifts to parents. So this kind of gender discrimination should end in our society. Across the Gulf, in the United Arab Emirates, 27-year-old Farah El-Amin describes herself as a chemical engineer, a sushi lover, and a fitness enthusiast. But she wouldn't call herself an Islamic feminist. I'm just a woman who happens to come from a Muslim background and live in a Muslim-majority country. I believe that one needs to be educated on gender roles and how they have come about. Personally, I think that forcing anybody to do something that they don't believe in or want to do is wrong. Therefore, if one identifies themselves as a Muslim, how they interpret Islam and how they view women's role in Islam is their business. Once they try to force it on others, I find that to be a breach of individuals' rights. I took a selfie of us so that I can send it to my mom and share it with her. That's program manager Nellie Akbar. She's here at the Women's Mosque of America, the first all-women's mosque in the United States. She's wearing black skinny jeans, has several tattoos on her wrists, and she borrowed a friend's winter scarf to cover her head for today's service. Maybe they would have called me out in a regular mosque or somebody would have like given me a dirty look, but I feel totally comfortable here. Like Nellie, the crowd today is mainly made up of 20 and 30-somethings. Many of them grew up with most of the freedoms living in the U.S., they're well-educated and have high-powered jobs. And they want to see themselves in their services, which is how the Women's Mosque of America was born. I thought, like, okay, if I call it the Women's Mosque of America, then it's going to be that big. That's Hasna Masnavi. She's the founder and president of the mosque. And she's just 28 years old. A couple of years ago, she enrolled in an online class on Islam led by a female Muslim scholar. I grew so inspired and so empowered. Um, you know, just having that female religious authority figure to look up to 
then when I started to go into the mosque on Friday, I, I started to think like, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to just hear a woman speak to me, you know, from the minbar? It wasn't long after that she started planning the all-female mosque. It's not easy growing up in America as a Muslim, especially with all the politics of it going on right now. And so you definitely question it and you doubt and you, you know, you go back and forth on things. And um, so it's nice to know that, you know, this was possible and that, that it's welcomed and we have powerful and educated women that I can look up to and I can admire and aspire to be like. Hi, we're Shakes and Facts, and we are here to learn how to spot a feminist. Oh, look, there's one. Shugs and Facts is a web comedy about two Muslim women who've recently immigrated to Brooklyn, New York. When you look at someone like her, do you think she's a feminist? No. I can believe you're a feminist, yes. Feminity is not this. The creator of the program, Shugs, is Nadia Manzor. And she's on a crusade to use humor and honesty to talk about the challenges she faced as a young immigrant coming of age in the Western world. It's a bit surprising, I think, for people to see women dressed like this doing this kind of comedy. And I think that is part of where the humor is. Like, oh my God, I can't believe that Shugs and Fats, you know, got a vibrator and like didn't know what it was about. That's hilarious. Like, you know, well, why is that hilarious? Because like, we don't think about women in burqas being sexually expressed, you know, or um, understanding sexual fulfillment necessarily. These are the stereotypes that we hold. Sometimes people ask me, they'll be like, you know, are you scared that there's going to be a fatwa on you? What are you going to do when you go to Pakistan? Um, you know, do you, how do you get the courage to do this? How do you answer it? You know, in honesty. So, for example, I was uh, supposed to be going to Pakistan in February. We cancelled. I wanted to cancel. We decided to postpone and think about it uh, to go in a different time because um, it seems pretty volatile and we're not really sure whether we're going to be you know, safe. And I really want to go and take the show there, but I just need to assess, you know, the situation. I'm, I'm planning on working and doing this work for a really long time. So I don't want to be reckless, you know, at the same time, if I was afraid, I wouldn't be doing this show. So it's, there's definitely some uh, larger confidence that I am connected to that is, you know, making me continue. You've been listening to Understanding Islamic Feminism on America Abroad.